Hi, I'm Stephanie, and this is Real Housewives of Neopia. Together, we're going to re-explore some dark depths of pop culture, most of which you've willfully forgotten. Before we commence today, I quickly want to redirect you to the very top of my episode description. There are some great links to some resources if you need help navigating and assisting in the revolution. As I mentioned last week, I hope to provide some worthwhile escapism and that you enjoy today's episode. So, although the following complaint seems inconsequential, I need to speak my truth. I am currently attempting a week without dairy because my stomach and beehole are both constantly in shambles. It is so far so good. I use some cranberry sorbet with rainbow sprinkles as a band-aid fix, but only time will tell. I suspect that the next charcuterie board I see will test me in a really intense way, which I'm dreading. This new endeavor has also thrown a wrench in my daily Malona habit, but it's high time I try to prioritize my physical comfort more than my obsession with things that taste great. Within reason, of course, I am only human. Before I move on to my weekly roommate horror story, I want to throw out a few non-reality TV recommendations. They are both Hulu originals, which makes me feel like a Black Mirror fembot engineered by Hulu herself, but I'm honestly being sincere. Firstly, I watched Pen15 for the third time. The experience elevates further each rewatch because I notice new things each viewing. For those of you who aren't in the Pen15 loop, it's a comedy series about two 7th grade BFFs, Maya and Anna, in the year 2000. Despite the fact that Maya and Anna are very visibly in their 30s in real life, I manage to always forget because of how well they nail the middle school girl experience. The soundtrack, references, and styling are also all electrifying given the time period. Going back to last week's episode of Real Housewives of Neopia, one particular episode about catfishing on AOL Instant Messenger cut to the core of me. I also watched the 2019 documentary Jawline for the second time because I wanted Aaron to see it. I don't think any other piece of media has ever made me feel older in my entire life. It focuses on two opposite spectrums of this very specific part of YouTube that I'm unfamiliar with due to my age. Again, I'm just going to sound old as fuck, but there's all these teen boys who are marketed interchangeably with motivational quotes and TikTok lip syncs. They're actually music Lee lip syncs to be specific because Jawline was filmed in 2016. A 16-year-old boy named Austin Tester is the protagonist, and he comes from a really hard childhood and financial background, and he lives in the middle of nowhere. He's a YouNow streamer with a small cult following of teen girls, but he really wants to transcend and make it big in LA. If you guys are familiar with that slimy little guy associated with Tanacon, Michael Wiest, the flip side of the film focuses on his talent management company. He lives in a house with a bunch of young boys who churn out SpawnCon and adhere to a fairly soulless persona. The most interesting part to me as a viewer, though, are the inner workings of their fan base and why this kind of content and influencer can thrive and flourish. They interview a ton of the preteen and teen girls who explain why exactly they stand these influencers. 
they're often not super popular or they have a hard upbringing or just otherwise struggling currently in that sort of blank slate presented by those boys or the management behind those boys rather they're just generic cute boys saying nice things and they make those girls feel understood and other otherwise soothed the content itself is fairly harmless for these girls to consume minus the fact that their vulnerability is being preyed on to cash in for these weird scummy managers but the peek behind the curtain of what goes into all of this is so dark-sided to me. So yeah, overall, I highly recommend both of those viewing experiences. Now I'm moving on to your weekly fix of ghouls and fools I've lived with over the years, but it's going to be something a little different today. Yeah! This individual isn't necessarily a roommate, but I did live with them for about a decade. We're going to be talking about my former stepmom, who we'll call Pumpkin. Flavor of Love Season 1 in general is fresh on my mind because of Reality Graveyard and because I'll be deep diving into my love of Tiffany Pollard later on. She and Pumpkin possess similarly polarizing auras, and to put it bluntly, they both have a jaundiced chic thing going on. Some of the background info I provide might seem like a downer, but I promise this segment will end with decent payoff and triumph for the underdog. Pumpkin and my father met online when I was in first grade. I always think they met in a Yahoo chat room, but I think it's actually an MSN chat room because she was a hotmail queen. They visited each other IRL in their respective countries before she finally moved here shortly thereafter. Although I was unaware of these details at the time, she also lied about both being married and having two young kids in the 8-12 to range. Not going to get into that too much right now, but I'm sure we'll be revisiting Pumpkin at a later date. Initially, we got along fine, and it honestly felt nice to have a daily female influence because my mom's IRL presence was sparse and unreliable at best. As I've touched upon in a previous episode, my mom struggled with alcoholism, addiction, and other things right up until she passed away in 2007, which is part of why she usually wasn't around and our relationship was mostly phone only. I was nine when my dad and Pumpkin married two years later. At that point, the dynamic changed considerably. I'd hear her say really hateful things about my mom when I was clearly in earshot, and she'd also weirdly try to get me in trouble all the time. Granted, I was definitely going through it, and there was plenty of material to work with, but she would outright invent things. This example is hilarious in hindsight if we just sidestep how evil it is, but she once told my dad that she spent hours scrubbing off a Marilyn Manson logo that I vandalized the toilet with. I never did that, but it's something I totally would have done at the time, which makes her obsession with getting me in trouble even more nefarious because she knew my dad would probably never believe me over her. She rejoiced when I'd get punished hard for something I didn't do and was angling to isolate me from my support system. This would be unacceptable even if it were an isolated incident, but it was far from it and lasted for years. I've since been told that she always hated me and was jealous of me because she believed my dad loved me more than her. 
This pattern persisted throughout the entirety of her time in my life, which, as I said, was about a decade. Plus, she leveled up from saying cruel things about me or my mother in earshot to saying them directly to me. There were at least three separate, several-month-long periods where she and I weren't on speaking terms, all while living in a pretty small two-bedroom apartment. Two of those times were mutual, but one of them was one-sided. She stopped acknowledging me entirely, even when I would speak to her, because the school psychologist had to make a report to child services after I confided about some other details of my home life. So, overall, pretty chill time for me. Now that we've provided some background and small examples, let's move along to the heart of the matter. My dad would always emphatically declare that next time she did or said X, Y, and Z to me, she'd be done, but that ultimately was never the case. It happened all the time throughout their entire marriage. When I was 16, they had a really insane fight that, of course, compelled her to say disgusting things about my now-dead mom. I witnessed the entire altercation, which ended with her getting my dad arrested over something that didn't happen. I'm not just saying that to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm saying it because I was there, and she admitted she just did it to be vindictive. Since I'd accepted by that point that nothing she could do or say to me would do the trick, I felt hopeful that her day of reckoning might finally be here. I, of course, was wrong, and she continued to be my dad's wife and live under the same roof as me. I had lots of other issues going on, but she was consistently one of the most traumatic forces in my life. With other trauma I endured that related to either of my parents or anyone else, I at least knew they both loved me, but having an adult woman absolutely fucking hate you and admittedly live to tear you down and try to exacerbate your existing weaknesses was a whole other story. So that being said, I was just so over it and over Pumpkin. I did what anyone in my position would have done. Once it was confirmed she wasn't going anywhere, my head was spinning with how distraught I was. I knew there was only one thing I could and should do. I retreated to our bathroom. I saw her suave hairspray, which wasn't an aerosol-type sprayer, but rather just like a normal-ass spray bottle. So naturally, I unscrewed the top, and I peed in her hairspray. I really can't co-sign a lot of my 16-year-old behavior and choices, but this is a notable exception. I have no regrets. Not one. I'm assuming that she must have used it at least once. She probably assumed it went bad or something at a certain point because I never got in trouble for this. And as we described, I would get in trouble for things I didn't even do, but especially if I did do something. But regardless, she definitely used it at least once before realizing the truth of the matter. Pumpkin, bye pumpkin. Now that I've been vulnerable on Maine, let's discuss how today's figurative guest of honor relates to all of this. As I said, I had a lot going on from the time of my birth that was compounded by Pumpkin's worst years. Things were especially tough when I was in middle school for a variety of reasons, but one particular woman provided me with such catharsis and escapism during those trying times. 
I'm, of course, talking about Tiffany New York Pollard. Even though I always watched reality shows that predated Flavor of Love, I believe this visionary harvested the seed of my lifelong obsession with the genre. I quickly want to sidebar to inform you that I often coped by wilding out on the Flavor of Love IMDb message boards. I had lots of drama with other confirmed catfishes. I was literally doxxed on there, which would be scary had anything happened, but nothing did, so it's just really funny. I actually know who did it, and I I recently found her on Instagram. I don't care to engage, but part of me wants to publicly comment on her photo, like, remember when you doxxed a 14-year-old on the Flavor of Love IMDb message board? Anyway, that's besides the point. I want to take this time to put some well-deserved respect on Tiffany Pollard's name and thanking her for making me the woman that I am today. Even though she's often reduced to a meme or a reaction gift by the calcified pineal gland crew, she is perhaps the most successful reality TV star of all time. When I say successful, I'm not referring to money or crossover work. There's sadly lots of reality stars like the whack-ass crew from Vanderpump Rules who bank more than her. In the same vein, lots of those reality stars parlay their careers by moonlighting as a podcaster, author, flat tummy tea partner, entertainment correspondent, or whatever else. They often cash in by branding themselves. While Tiffany has also accomplished that on some level, I want to praise her as the one and only career reality star. Looking at her IMDb right now, she's been consistently booked and blessed starting in 2006 with Flavor of Love, and the most recent credit is 2020's X on the Beach. She has 39 credited roles as herself. I don't think she really gets enough respect for being a true master of her craft. I might be in the minority, but I consider reality TV to be a skill just like acting or singing is. To me, Tiffany's the only person who has fully realized her craft into a full-blown, wildly successful career. I would say Spencer Pratt is in second place, but I would argue that he's far behind her. There's possibly millions of individuals who have been on a reality show since the genre's inception. And some of those people are funny, beautiful, dynamic, or entertaining, or a combination of those traits. But not one other person has sustained strictly reality TV-based career other than Tiffany. I want to examine why. As we all know, Tiffany New York Pollard first graced our screens via 2006's Flavor of Love Season 1. There's a 2014 interview quote from a casting associate who worked on the show that always resonates with me whenever I think of her, which obviously is often, if you know anything about me. Her path to stardom and origin was unclear even to him, who stated, I didn't find Tiffany. I would love to know who did. This is actually something two of my casting friends and I have talked about through the years. Who found Tiffany Pollard? I thought she was a great marketer of her talent. Whatever it is, she was it. She was just a walking time bomb of awesomeness for reality TV. In the same interview and in the same question, producer Mark Cronin also chimed in saying, 
She was a reality television genius. You could see why Flavor would really fall for her. And then with the other women who were her competition, she was absolutely vicious. I am so powerful. My mind, oh, it amazes me sometimes. I personally love all of Tiffany's work, but her debut on Flavor of Love was truly a thing of beauty. It's clear that she possesses the self-awareness and intelligence to realize she's making a TV show, and she acts accordingly. She had no way of knowing this would essentially become her career for life. For all she knew, Flavor of Love would be added to the double-digit list of discarded VH1 celeb reality shows, like Breaking Bonaducci or Kept, the Jerry Hall dating show. So with that in mind, the audience was treated to a really raw and unique talent. Her soft-spoken cadence and talking heads, while still matter-of-factly reading everyone for filth and stoking the flames of our burgeoning New York fantasy, was such a compelling combination. Even though she definitely has a knack for antagonizing her competitors in the most hilarious possible way, I especially loved how her indifference and lack of desire for friendship with the women absolutely enraged them. When she leaned into competitive mind games in this moment, it was artful. For reference, Tiffany was addressing Rain, who she would have just met less than 24 hours prior. By Tiffany's own admission, she was just trying to gauge Rain's reactivity level. Personally, if someone I met less than a day ago and had no conversations with told me to choke, I'd just be like, okay, and move on with my day. As we all saw, though, Tiffany was right on the money and moved that storyline along like a grizzled professional. Those kinds of inclinations and intuition, without any prior television experience, set her apart from many of her contemporaries. I've also said this many times, but I will say it again. I don't think the Of Love franchise would have flourished the way it did without her help. I don't want to discount the contributions of the other women, but she was the one to watch and the reason why people were so eager to continue tuning in. By the time she returned to Flavor of Love Season 2, New York was a fully realized character. When I refer to her as a character, I don't mean to dehumanize her or take away that she is earnestly a bright, witty, lovable, gorgeous, and dynamic woman, completely independently of her reality star career, but by her own admission, she is aware that she has a job to do and acts the part. She was specifically brought back in season two to shake the girls up, to shake the girls up, which she did brilliantly. I also want to quickly point out how much I love her outfit on that photo shoot episode, and I wish to recreate it. One of my favorite and most overlooked quotes from said episode is when she tells Boots, you're clicking, and she takes a super long pause to audibly stir her ice in her cocktail but you're clicking down. I guess ice sounds don't translate well to GIF format, but we need to recognize because I never hear anyone quote that or reference it. The rest of her VH1 tenure continued to be legendary. As we all know, I Love New York, which was her own dating show, aired two very stellar seasons. 
Up until last year, I hadn't rewatched them in quite a while, but I was consistently made to cry, laugh, literal tears running down. If I recall correctly, I think season three of I Love New York was already casted and ready to film, but the Jasmine Fiore murder changed everything. I personally haven't lost hope, and I suspect COVID-19 would just vanish if we got a new Tiffany dating show in 2020. New York Goes to Hollywood, which documents her trajectory to acting, and New York Goes to Work, which was basically a Simple Life knockoff, are both still so funny as well. I enjoy them most when I just want to loll and relax before bed. I believe they're both available on Tubi. Even though the Of Love franchise as we knew it effectively ended in 2009 due to the Jasmine Fiore murder, Tiffany has remained booked consistently since then with good reason. You can enlist her IMDb to check out the copious shows she's been on, but my favorite non-VH1 show would have to be her stint on UK Celebrity Big Brother. I've never been one of those people who responds to ASMR, gets those tingly sensations, but hearing these five words are the closest I've ever gotten. Tiffany is in the diary room talking. Her housemates were largely trash, but she persevered and showed us all how it should be done. If you have absolutely no reference for her stint on the show, please do yourself a favor and simply Google David's Dead Tiffany Pollard. For the record, I'm completely Team Tiffany in that scenario, and I don't understand how anyone rational would feel otherwise. Thanks to the 24-7 format of Big Brother and their use of a diary room, the audience was frequently treated to artful soliloquies by Tiffany that I quote daily. What would you want to say to Gemma? Pretty much I will let Gemma know that she is a fat cunt, and um, the shoes that she gave me were not something that I would particularly buy for myself. They were old maiden type of shoes. And she said that those shoes were meant to be worn on a beautiful woman. So if that's the case, she should have put them back on the rack. And she should never even purchase them because she was unqualified to own those shoes if that's the case. And um, I think Gemma is just a disgrace. She's a disgrace to humanity and she's a disgrace to women who are actually beautiful and classy. And um, she just doesn't have the vernacular that she thinks she possesses. Somebody lied to her several times and told her that she was fly, hot, and sexy, and beautiful. And she's nothing like that. She's nothing of the sort. I could truly go on and on, but I just want to summarize this love letter to Tiffany by saying thank you. Thank you for single-handedly revolutionizing reality TV as we know it, and thank you for helping shape me into the woman I am today. I know it sounds like I'm being silly when I say things like that, but I'm really not. I've shared a bit with you guys about my childhood, but have barely scratched the surface, and I'm just so grateful that I had such a clever and magnetic presence to bring me joy and distract me when I literally wanted to kill myself. As I touched on in my last episode, too, I see so many fellow non-Black people using her memes or quotes as a substitute for a personality or to signal that they're feeling sassy, 
without recognizing the artist behind the art and viewing her simply as a funny gif rather than a fully realized human being who possesses a very tangible talent. I'm signing off for now, but please watch your favorite Tiffany Pollard works tonight in my honor. I personally would recommend I Love New York Season 1. Thank you to everyone for listening, as always, and an extra special thank you for my monthly pledges. If you'd like to support this podcast for as low as 99 cents monthly, there's a link at the bottom of my episode description or a button on my Anchor profile. You can find me on Instagram at Botox Groupon, B-O-T-O-X-G-R-O-U-P-O-N, and the pod as well, at Real Housewives of Neopia. Have a safe and sexy week. I can't wait to chat with you all again soon. Love ya. Bye.